Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee that thou, Lord Jesus, hast been given the name that is above every name, and that at thy name every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that thou art Lord, to the glory and praise of the Father. Bless the word as it goes forth in this hour, and use it to build thy people. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen. In these studies in the book of Revelation, we are in the 14th chapter, and I am going to read verses 14 to 20 in a translation that I have made myself. This is not King James Version. This is not Revised Standard Version. But I have adopted readings from many, many different translations and followed the original text. In this great paragraph of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in one of the judgment scenes. Revelation 14, beginning with verse 14. And I saw, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud I saw one sitting like unto a son of man, having upon his head a crown of gold, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another messenger came out of the inner temple, crying with a great voice to him that sat on the cloud, Send forth thy sickle and reap, because the hour to reap is come, for the harvest of the earth is overripe. And he that sat upon the cloud cast his sickle upon the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another messenger came out of the inner temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another messenger came out from the altar, having authority over fire, and cried with a great cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Send forth thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, because her grapes are fully ripe. And the messenger cast his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vintage of the earth, and cast it into the winepress, the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside of the city, and blood came forth from the winepress, even to the bridles of the horses, as far as a thousand six hundred stadia. That last is a Greek measurement, a portion of a mile, so that the thousand and six hundred would be a good many miles. Now for an understanding of the verses which follow, we must study briefly the significance of the word cloud in the scriptures. There is one particular cloud which follows the Lord Jesus Christ from eternity to eternity. It is the cloud of the glory of God, the Shekinah. The Lord came down to dwell in the midst of his people, appearing before them at night as a pillar of fire and in the day as a pillar of cloud. This cloud went before them as they journeyed through the wilderness. When the Lord gave the manna, which is certainly a type of Christ, the living bread from heaven, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. It was the same at the giving of the law. This glory was again manifested at the second giving of the law. When the tabernacle was finished, we read that a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This cloud of glory abode at all times in the tabernacle within the Holy of Holies, upon the mercy seat, which was, of course, the place of the atonement. We read in Numbers, so it was always. The cloud covered it by day, and the appearance of fire by night. When the seventy elders were chosen to help Moses, we read that the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him. Other like appearances are to be found elsewhere in the Old Testament. Now this is not a cloud in the ordinary sense of a rain cloud. They used the word cloud because the thing that appeared was describable only in terms of something that they knew. We have a same illustration in our generation when people speak of the mushroom cloud that appears at the time of the explosion of an atomic bomb. It's not a mushroom and it's not a cloud. And we must understand that it's not a cloud any more than it is a mushroom. But it's something that's shaped like a mushroom and looks like a cloud, and so they called it this thing, by the name of cloud. When Solomon had finished the temple, we find that this cloud of glory of God came in with the bringing of the ark. When the priests had withdrawn after the ark had been placed in the Holy of Holies, we read that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. And there's another long passage that speaks of this same fact. We find in the book of Ezekiel, in several different passages, the story of the departure of the cloud. It's one of the saddest passages in the Word of God as the cloud of glory leaves this earth and is moved from the temple back to heaven. The glory of the God of Israel had been dwelling upon the mercy seat, which was overshadowed by the cherubim. And then we read in Ezekiel chapter 9, The glory of the Lord of Israel was gone up from the cherub whereupon he was, to the threshold of the house. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub, and stood over the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. The great cherubim then appeared above the temple, and then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house, and stood over the cherubim. And these lifted up their wings, and mounted up from the earth in my sight, says Ezekiel. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, which is on the east side of the city. The next time the glory is mentioned by Ezekiel, it is seen in the vision of the future, where it shall be taken from man no longer. Daniel gives us a picture of the scene in heaven, which we have studied back in Revelation 5. And there the coming king, the Lord Jesus, is seen arrayed in the glory which he shall bring with him. In the New Testament, this cloud is to be found at many points in the narrative. Dr. A.T. Robertson, the noted Greek scholar, 
speaks of Luke's account of the virgin birth in a way that leads us to believe that the cloud of glory was present at the supernatural conception of the baby Jesus in the womb of Mary. Luke describes the scene, and the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Dr. Robertson says that the words shall overshadow thee are a figure of a cloud coming upon her. Here it is like the Shekinah glory, which suggests it, where the cloud of glory represents the presence and the power of God. Now it was the shining of this same glory round about the shepherds who were watching over the flocks in the fields that caused them to be sore afraid. It was certainly this glory in which the Lord Jesus was transfigured, which the Holy Spirit gave to Peter as a guarantee of the truth of Christ's literal return to reign. When the Lord ascended into heaven, it was this same cloud that received him out of their sight. When the Lord Jesus comes again to take away his own, to be with himself, the dead in Christ and those who live shall be caught up together with them into this same glory. And at the close of the great tribulation period, he will come with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Now it's immaterial whether this being, seated upon the white cloud, having on his head the wreath of gold, and carrying in his hand a sharp sickle, is the Lord Jesus Christ in person, or a mighty angelic ambassador, clothed for the moment with the authority of the Lord in the prosecution of the task that this messenger is to fulfill. Some commentators see the Lord in person, others an angelic messenger. We're inclined to believe personally that this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, fulfilling the prophecy of Luke, they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. If it be objected that this being is said to be like the Son of Man, and that therefore it cannot be the Son of Man himself, we would simply point to John's first vision of Christ as recorded in the first chapter of Revelation. For there we read that he said, In the midst of the seven lampstands John saw one like unto the Son of Man, and this one was most clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, we read that he said to John, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. The commentators have been clearly divided as to the meaning of the reaping which now takes place. We are quite in accord with Frost, who says, that the whole portrayal of the 14th chapter is a foreview of what comes afterwards in the 15th to the end of the book of Revelation. If we read through the remaining portion of the Apocalypse, we find that there are two great judgments to take place after this announcement of reaping and vintage. There is the judgment of the seven last bowls of the wrath of God, which sweeps away Babylon the Great, and there is the judgment of Armageddon. 
it should be noted immediately that the first of these is an ecclesiastical judgment and the second a judgment of the nations, a religious judgment, a political judgment. How in keeping with the prophecy we are now studying, the first is a reaping, the second is a vintage. The Lord administers much of his government by means of angel powers. Daniel tells us that the angel of God who represents the affairs of Israel is Michael the archangel. This passage even goes so far as to state that Michael, the great prince which standeth for the children of Israel, shall stand up for Israel in the time of the end, under the reign of the Antichrist. Is it inconceivable, therefore, that this messenger of verse 15 is Michael, calling unto the Lord to bring the long-awaited judgment upon those who have oppressed his people? At all events, the angel messenger cries out, Send forth thy sickle and reap, because the hour to reap is come, for the harvest of the earth is overripe. Judgment has been long overdue. Only the patience of God can account for the delay. But now the time has surely come. The harvest is overripe. Robertson discusses the meaning of this last word, overripe, and while pointing out that it might possibly mean nothing more than ripeness, nevertheless concludes that it means dead ripeness, overripeness. The word in the Greek really means to wither, to dry up, and is used in James with that meaning. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth. So the Lord heeds the cry of his angels. The sickle is cast upon the earth. The preposition is most revealing. The sickle is cast, epi, upon or against the earth. Most clearly it is a judgment. The spiritual powers are reaped as the national powers will be trodden down in the vintage. And the earth was reaped, our text states. Cease has well said of this sentence, tremendous words. He goes on with a paragraph which merits repetition. What an experience for the race of man is bound up in that awful brevity. What plagues descend with that sharp sickle what a crash comes with its alighting upon a world dead ripe for final judgment. What powers and systems fall before it. What sores and agonies it brings to them that bear the mark of the beast and worship his image. Just how much of this great harvest pertains to the reaping, as distinguished from the vintage, we are not fully informed but it cuts from their foundations all the main supports of the Antichrist. It includes all the disasters that come from the pouring out of the great bowls of wrath. It brings down great Babylon with a crash that fills the world with lamentations and horror. 
It strips the great adulteress of all her pride and queenliness and fills her with torment, sorrow, and burning. It sinks all the riches and glories of a godless world into one common ruin, never to be brought up again. And of the two phases of those ministrations of the wrath of God which are to clear this planet of the products and representatives of rebellion against his throne, this is one, and perhaps the most general and far-reaching of the two. When the seer says, the earth was reaped, he tells of an amount of cutting down, divesture, sorrowful, sweeping away forever, which the scripture describes as the termination of the whole present order of things. For the harvest is the end of the world. But certainly it's only one phase of the destruction that is to come upon the world at this time. For after the harvest comes the gathering of the grapes. Another messenger comes forth this time from the inner temple which is in heaven. We are inclined to believe that this is another representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not harm the interpretation if it be insisted that this is only a representative of his. But we know from the 19th chapter that the Lord comes forth with the judgment that is described here in anticipation. This fifth messenger has been described by Sweet as a minister of vengeance. He answers to the call of the sixth messenger in the 18th verse, as the Son of Man answered to the call of the fourth messenger in the 15th. The angelic messenger who calls out to the Lord to complete the judgment is none other than the messenger of God who has authority over the judgment fires of God. We saw when we considered Revelation 8.5 that the judgment that fell upon the earth was on the basis of the righteousness of God as manifested at the cross of Christ. The altar not only bore the body of the Lamb, the altar also contained the fire which consumed the Lamb. Each individual must have either the Lamb or the fire. If we do not take the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we must have him as judge. Sin is either taken from us and born by the substitute, or it is born by us and must crush us as it receives the fires of God. As the first harvest is declared to be overripe, so the grapes are said to be fully ripe. They call out for judgment. The holy angels, properly jealous of the righteousness of God, know that the world has long been the breeding place for sin and rebellion, calling out for punishment. When the moment arrives, their pent-up feelings cry out to God for precipitate action. Send forth the sickle and reap. Harvest is overdue. There are two phrases in the following scene which link it unquestionably with the Battle of Armageddon. 
which is yet to come upon this earth. One phrase carries us on in the Apocalypse, and the other takes us back to the Old Testament. Our last verse speaks of the treading of the winepress. We turn over to the 19th chapter of Revelation and read, Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. This should have been enough to keep some commentators from the error of thinking that this judgment applied to Israel only, since Israel is spoken of in certain passages as the Lord's vine. Very clearly this application is to the Gentile nations and not to Israel at all. This becomes even clearer when we go to the Old Testament description of the judgment of the nations at the battle of Armageddon. The wonderful prophecy of Joel gives us the detailed account of this judgment. Listen to Joel speak in chapter 3. For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations, and I will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Here the time is clearly indicated. This judgment is to be at the time when the captivity of Israel is over. That time is, of course, yet future. And we know it to be the time of the great tribulation, described in Matthew 24, and the judgment of the nations, described in Matthew 25. There can be no doubt of the unity of all of these promises. They give us a prophetic picture of the same events. Joel describes the vintage judgment as follows, Proclaim ye this among the nations, prepare war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords, and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say, I am strong, Haste ye and come, all ye nations round about, and gather yourselves together. Thither cause the mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Now these mighty ones are none other than the angels, who are the instruments of judgment, which we now see at work in the book of Revelation. We read, Let the nations bestir themselves, and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I, God, sit to judge all the nations round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread ye, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Note that this is not a text for evangelistic meetings. Some have used it to describe the decisions which individuals should be making for Christ. 
The reality, of course, is that it is the rendering of the divine court decision, the decision of final destruction from the face of the earth. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall roar from Zion, and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be a refuge unto his people, and a stronghold to the children of Israel. It should be noted that the wine press does not include Israel at all. They are clearly eliminated from the picture of judgment. And we finish, So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no stranger pass through her any more. In the Mediterranean countries, it's a common sight at the time of the grape harvest to see the grapes cast into a large vat in order that the juice should be expressed by the naked feet of the vintners. We have seen this in Greece. Macaulay, in his famous poem, Horatius at the Bridge, describes the countryside from which all the men have departed as soldiers so that the work has to be done by the women. This year... The must shall foam round the white feet of laughing girls whose sires have marched to Rome. But there will be no laughing when the winepress of the wrath of God is trodden. The Hebrew of Nahum 1-2 calls our God the Lord of wrath. He is absolute master of his judgments and he shall give them forth according to the measure of his plan. The Lord Jesus Christ himself will do the treading of the winepress. The wrath of the Lamb, which some men foolishly thought to be upon them as early as the time of the seal judgments in Revelation 6, is about to be poured out upon the earth. All judgments up to this point have been introductory. All judgments up to this point have been samples. All judgments up to this point have been rehearsals. The judgments of God are about to take place. Armageddon is in the north of Palestine. The valley of Jehoshaphat is in the south. Basra is named by Isaiah as the place where the Lord treads the winepress and the distance between the farthest points of this front is 1,600 stadia. And we shall discuss this great battle in detail when we come to the consideration of the 19th chapter. May God stir your heart and make you to realize the judgments are coming, that you may flee to Christ while it is yet day. And our God and Father, we ask thy blessing upon the word, that it may reach the hearts of men for thine own purposes, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We ask thee that as thy word goes forth, that it may be in the power of the Spirit, and that blessing may come to the hearts of thy people. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I am reading first from the 15th chapter of the book of Revelation, 
the first part of the chapter, and then we will comment on this great vision of the future. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven messengers having seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a glassy sea mingled with fire, and them that come off victorious from the wild beast and from his image, and from the number of his name, standing upon the glassy sea, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the bond slave of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of the ages. Who shall not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? Because thou alone art holy. For all the nations shall come and worship in thy presence. For thy righteous sentences have been made manifest. Now this is my own translation of this first part of the 15th chapter. And as we go on, I shall continue the translation and comment from there. Now in these studies, at long last, we have come to the announcement that gives us to see through to the end of the wrath of God. Up until the present in our studies, we have seen judgment following judgment in increasing tempo, each judgment more frightful than the former, until our hearts would stop were it not for the fact that we know that we are protected and covered by the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ and freed from any possibility of facing this terrible doom which awaits those who know not God and who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The judgments which attended the opening of the seven seals were followed by those judgments brought in with the sound of the seven trumpets. The climax is now reached with the seven bowls of God's wrath, and mercifully we are told before we even read them that they are the last of the judgments. In them the wrath of God is finished. Now it's not to be supposed, as some have attempted to show, that this verse teaches that punishment is not to be eternal for the unbelievers. We have dealt with most of the objections of these people in previous messages. It remains merely to point out that the wrath of God, which is completed at this point, is that wrath which is to fall upon the nations of the earth in the great tribulation. The wrath which was prepared for the devil and his messengers, which Christ announced in Matthew 25:41, that wrath is the lake of fire, which does not receive its first inhabitant until the end of this judgment period, at which time we shall see the Antichrist and the unholy spirit, the beast and the false prophet, cast therein. Now, the present vision is one which takes us on to the end of the 19th chapter of Revelation. For although the seven bowls of wrath are announced here in the 15th chapter, they are not poured out until the 16th chapter. Then, when this is completed, one of the messengers talks to John about some of the details of the vision which he has seen. And the 17th to the 19th chapters are concerned with these details, the final consummation of rebellion against God and the final divine dealing with it. We can be exceedingly humble and happy that the Lord has seen fit to tell us 
that we shall be kept from this terrible hour. For in Revelation 3.10, he tells us that the believers will be removed from this earth before the terrible judgments that are to end God's dealings with it. Although God will have others of his chosen ones to be his instruments during this dread period, as we have already seen. And then finally, chapter 20 takes us from the scene of earth's judgments into the scene of eternal judgment. And the remaining chapters describe the happiness and joy and felicity of heaven. So from our present vantage point in the 15th chapter, we can see the beginning of the end of man's sin and the last of the plagues sent by God. John has already recorded two signs, that of the woman clothed with the sun and that of the great red dragon. The first had to do with Israel, the second with Satan. This third sign, therefore, is called another sign. Oh, it's so wonderful that John calls it great and marvelous. We may well wonder if this is not the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, when Christ in Matthew 24:30 said, When they see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. If it is, they would have good reason to wail. Zephaniah writes of this day, Wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until that day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour out on them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Zephaniah 3, verse 8. And all God's anger is here poured out. The seven messengers are seen in heaven, having the seven last plagues. The idea of finality is uppermost. In the pouring out of these bowls of judgment, the wrath of God is finished, comes to its final end against the sin of the earth. But, as in all of the visions of great judgment, the Holy Spirit is very careful to give a view of the safety of his own people. Before the messengers are permitted to go forth from the temple with the bowls of wrath, the movement of events is arrested, and the scene is shifted to the presence of God, where the righteous are seen in worship and victory, safe from the terrible wrath that is now to be poured out. After the four horsemen of chapter 6 had ridden forth under the first of the seal judgments, the first of the martyr victims of the ruthless power of Antichrist are seen to be safely in heaven, where they were to await their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were. This we saw in chapter 6. And then the fury of the Antichrist is intensified, and the 144,000 are sealed for safety, and the Lord gives us a vision of them at rest forever with the Lamb in the midst of the throne, feeding them and wiping all tears from their eyes. This we saw in the seventh chapter. Now in the early history of the people of God, way back at the time of Moses and the children of Israel, they were led out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, in which their enemies were destroyed. The people, victorious by the power of God, sang with Moses, the great song of victory, we read it in Exodus 15, 
I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he is become my salvation. Now, in the tribulation period, the people of God are kept safely through the sea of persecution and martyr death, while their Pharaoh, the Antichrist, is destroyed behind them. They come victoriously to the safe shore of eternity and sing the song of redemption after the seven last plagues, even as Moses and the people sang it after the ten first plagues. Both of these numbers have spiritual significance, seven representing divine perfection and finality, and ten standing for numerical perfection. The two series of events, one in the book of Exodus, the other here in the book of Revelation, both ending in triumph for God's people, call forth worship and praise unto him who deals so bountifully in his great grace. And it speaks of them as standing before the glassy sea. And this glassy sea recalls, of course, the sea of glass like unto crystal before which the four and twenty elders sat, which we discussed in chapter 4 and verse 6. There are many commentators who have noted the similarity between the two. And then speaking of the dissimilarity, one says, if it is the same... It has become ominously commingled now, for there it was like unto crystal in clearness, but here it is mingled with fire. The difference is indeed striking and can teach us much. We saw in chapter 4 that the sea was like the laver, the wash basin in the earthly temple, which in Solomon's temple was called a, a sea. It was the place in the order of the earthly temple where the priests cleansed themselves before entering into the holy places. We pointed out that the sea was now turned to crystal as a symbol of the fact that the days for the necessity of cleansing were over forever. Never again would there be sin to confess. God's people will be free from its taint forever. The old nature at this point in God's dealings has been removed, and with the removal of the fountain of sin, which put forth the bitterness of sin, the whole stream is dried up, and it will never again be necessary to seek forgiveness. The laver was the symbol of the word by which we are cleansed. Sin, the fountain, is removed by the work of Christ at the cross, but sins, the flow, are dealt with by the word of his faithfulness. Peter had been cleansed by the word about the death of the Lord and needed no further cleansing save that which removed the defilement from his daily walk in the midst of the world. This is why Jesus refused to wash Peter's head and hands, though insisting that the feet must be cleansed. Now in our age... This is God's method of maintaining our fellowship with himself. And so, when the believers of the church period are removed at the beginning of the tribulation period, their labor is seen as a sea of crystal. Some of them may have suffered martyrdom, but the maintenance of their fellowship 
was by the Word alone. And now here in our study in Revelation, we're in the tribulation period, and the Lord has seen fit to demand for His honor and glory that they maintain their fellowship at the price of their sufferings. Their labor is crystal mingled with fire. In the time immediately preceding the overthrow of the Antichrist and his power, there will be a sore trial of faith. Peter writes of the symbols of fire in this connection, for in his epistle in chapter 1 and verse 7 he says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now in sea mingled with fire, we see that the Lord recognizes these sufferings and commemorates the faithfulness of this martyr group in this beautiful way. It would seem that this company of martyrs is kept distinct from all other groups of believers spoken of in the book of Revelation as they are the ones who have come off victorious in the conflict with the devilish trinity of Satan, the dragon, the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet. Thus we have the devil, the antichrist, and the unholy spirit, Satan's counterfeit of the trinity. Now this group of believers described here is seen to be standing upon the sea of glass mingled with fire. The preposition in Greek may be translated by, upon, or over. They are standing by, standing upon, standing over. At all events, their labors are done, and they are now seen in full praise and worship. They have the harps of God, and they sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Now this does not mean that they sang the same words which Moses and the children of Israel sang when they stood on the victory side of the Red Sea. The words of this song are given to us, and they can be sung by this group irrespective of their race and background. We call attention to this because some commentators have sought to teach that this group were only Jewish saints of the tribulation period because they sang the song of Moses which was a song sung under the law. But as a matter of fact, the song of Moses was sung before the giving of the law. But the question has no point here because the words of the song are given to us. To sing the song of Moses and the Lamb means to sing the song of physical deliverance and spiritual redemption. Great and marvelous, they sing, great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of the ages. Who shall not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? Because thou alone art holy. For all the nations shall come and worship in thy presence. For thy righteous sentences have been made manifest." As Moses and the children of Israel were drawn out to praise because of the works of God displayed in their behalf, so these saints are drawn to praise because of the marvels which God works in their behalf. The prophet Micah, writing of these days, says, The land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein, for the fruit of their doings. Feed the people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, 
which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. And the Hebrew is, According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him new marvels. The nations shall see and be confounded. At all of their might they shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid because of the Lord our God, and shall fear because of thee. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. Now here is a prophecy in Micah, of new marvels which the Lord is going to perform in behalf of his people Israel. In Egypt there was a marvel of Greece in passing over the blood-stained houses of his people. There was a marvel of power in opening a way through the Red Sea. There was a marvel of judgment in destroying the pursuing Egyptians in the sea. There was a marvel of guidance in supplying the cloud and the fire to lead the people by day and by night. There was a marvel of goodness in giving them manna and quail for their daily food. There was a marvel of condescension in pitching his tabernacle to dwell among them. There was a marvel of patience in enduring their murmurings and their rebellion. There was a marvel of faithfulness in the constant remembrance of his covenant. And yet God says that he's going to show his people new marvels. What will they be? Oh, how infinite is our God! Jeremiah tells us that the works of the Lord on behalf of his people will be so great that the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, and from all the lands whither he had driven them. And, says God, I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. I've quoted from Jeremiah 16. Now these new marvels of grace and deliverance are hidden from our eyes, yet they are certain. Micah says that the sight of these wonders will confound the nations at the sight of God's people. They will be astounded at the work of God. Our passage in Revelation teaches that all of the nations shall be brought to bow in the presence of the Lord as a result of these marvels. His righteous judgments are manifest, and all shall see God in his workings in behalf of his people. Now the different ancient manuscripts of the New Testament have three different readings for one of the phrases we are studying. The text from which our authorized version was made names the Lord as the King of the Saints. The revision and most commentators take the reading which describes him as the King of the Nations. A.T. Robertson, one of the greatest Greek scholars of the past generation, holds to the King of the Ages, corresponding to Jeremiah, where God is called the living God and an everlasting King and to Timothy, where he is called the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God. Now we may be sure that one of the last two is correct. 
the context would justify his being called King of the Nations or King of the Ages. And here he is announcing the final judgments upon the nations and is showing himself to be the Lord of eternity, either therefore is acceptable in place of the authorized rendering. And now that the saints, victorious in their struggle with the enemy, are seen to have overcome the Antichrist and to be safely in glory, the seven messengers are allowed to proceed to the fulfilling of their mandate. They go forth from the inner temple of heaven, that is, from the very presence of God, to pour out the bowls of wrath with the last plagues that are to come upon the nations. And once more it should be observed, the judgment of God proceeds from the very heart of His holiness. Time and again we have seen that judgment is based on the righteousness displayed at the cross. The inner temple which is mentioned here was the holy of holies in the earthly tabernacle, the place in which the ark with its mercy seat received the drops of blood in the propitiation on the day of atonement. In the heavenly temple, the inner temple is the very presence of God himself. Judgment proceeds, therefore, from all that God reveals himself to be, the holy and righteous one. The vision that John saw under the seventh trumpet in chapter 11, verse 19, is here expanded to its fullness. We are about to see further details of the judgment that was there announced. The four living creatures have been considered in detail when we studied their first appearance. It was they who opened the seals and made it possible for John to see the first of the great judgments that are coming upon the earth. One from among their number now hands the seven bowls of wrath to the seven messengers. Our King James Version renders this word as though the vessel were some sort of a bottle. It is most certainly the common Greek word for a rather flat bowl, almost a saucer, in which incense was carried into the temple. It's the same vessel as that which was carried by the living creatures and the four-and-twenty elders in their worship before the Lamb. The Antichrist and the nations would not bring the censers of worship with their worship, and therefore they must have these censers filled with the wrath of God. It is one more illustration of the word which must ring in every sinner's heart. If you will not have him as your Savior, you must have him as your judge. From the glory and power of God came a smoke filling the inner temple. Smoke is frequently a symbol of the presence of the Lord in His holiness. When He came down to give the law, Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. We read in Exodus 19 and 18, before Isaiah was cleansed from his sin, he saw the vision of the Lord high and lifted up, his train filling the temple, with the attendant seraphim veiling their faces and their feet, crying one to another of the holiness of the Lord of hosts. And we read, The posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. When Aaron and his successors offered the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, 
the Lord ordered that he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, so that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, so that he die not. How all of this speaks of the majesty and the holiness of our God. But though Aaron could not approach the mercy seat without hiding it with the smoke of the incense, and though we can never come to God except through the Lord Jesus Christ, it should be noted that not even the redeemed children of God are permitted to enter into the inner temple during the pouring out of the seven bowls containing the last plagues, the fullness of the wrath of God. What insight we should have here of the holiness of God. And may we not be allowed to think that behind this hiding smoke the heart of God is weeping, even as the Lord Jesus wept over Jerusalem, as he acknowledged that all the efforts of his mercy had been in vain, and that the city refused all of his offers of pardon and love. And as we shall be in heaven at that moment, yet outside of the presence of God, shall we not know that he suffers alone for the horror of the sin that separates men from himself, and forces him to send them away to outer darkness forever. O oh, take off thy shoes from off thy feet, thou art standing on holy ground. The voice that now speaks is the voice of God himself. No angelic messenger is in his presence in this awful instant. The messengers bearing the bowls stand outside. The living creatures have there handed them the bowls of wrath. The smoke excludes all, yes, all from the divine presence. And then God, whose patience has lasted throughout the centuries, comes to the final end. He speaks. The great voice from the inner temple is the voice of the long offended God. The messengers receive his direct orders. Go forth and pour out the seven bowls of wrath into the earth. The end of all earth judgment has come. The mills of God grind slowly but they grind exceeding fine, and the last of the grist is now to go through. The machinery of judgment has been set in motion, and the Creator Himself has said that it shall not be arrested until the last plagues of His wrath are finished. And we pray Thee, our God and Father, that we may consider this scene with awe, and bow before Thy majesty, and come to thee while it is yet day to believe in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away our sin, that we may not have to stand before thee in judgment, but only in mercy. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.